Coming up, it's another edition of The Real World. Where are they now? Nathaniel Blackburn from The Real World Season Seattle. It's Season 7. Make sure you subscribe as I'll be adding more videos like this. But Nathaniel has a lot to talk about during his time in Seattle, including the slap heard around the world. Let's get to the episode right now. Hello and welcome to another edition of Here's the Pitch. It's sponsored by Masses Restaurants in St. Louis. There's five locations. STLMasses.com is their website. If you're driving through, watching in St. Louis, go check them out. Five locations. Good menu, good good pasta. And today I'm very excited. We're going to uh, be talking to folks from the, uh, the uh, real world and reality television and see what they're up to. And I'm lucky and happy to talk to Nathaniel Blackburn today and Nathaniel, we talked right off the start. Everyone knew you as Nathan. You're now Nathaniel. We'll we'll get into that. But uh, good to see you. Where are you living? What where? Tell people what you're up to right now. I know TruthNorthRetreats.org is something we're definitely going to talk a lot about. But just tell us uh, where you're living, what you've been up to. Yeah, man. First of all, Brad, thanks for having me on the show, man. I I, I love what you're doing and I uh, love the content that you're putting out there. Um, I, I currently live in Dallas, Texas. Um, got married a few years ago. Uh, ended up uh, getting sober um, some years ago. Uh, life after the real world kicked my butt in a lot of ways. Um, it was really good in a lot of ways as well. Uh, my wife and I are expecting twins in a couple months. And uh, I founded a men's ministry a few years ago called True North Retreats. What do you do there? What's uh, what, can, what, do you, what do you do? Just tell us about it. Yeah, man. So, you know, along the way, uh, you know, the real world was was such a – uh, unbelievable experience and opportunity for me as a young man. And, um, you know, what I didn't understand as a young, young man is, was that I had a lot of trauma, uh, from childhood, hence why I was probably chosen for the real world. Cause I had this, you know, kind of sensational story going on at that time. And, you know, when I, when I left the real world, I got into film and television for a number of years and, and had some really great opportunities, well, what was going on with that um, was I was uh, had access to a lot of cool things and a lot of parties and a lot of um, opportunity uh, that that ended up really kicking my butt. Um, and drinking and stuff uh, took me down some really dark paths for a really long time. And um, I ended up getting sober uh, out of desperation um, because I just, <laughs> I was going to take my life if, if, if I didn't try to get sober. And, and, and when I got sober, um, faith entered my story. Uh, and, and in that process, uh, my relationship with God, um, it was shown to me that, you know, why I drank and why I found security in, in the party and in the party scene. And it was just because I had a ton of undealt with trauma uh, in my life. Um, and so I started walking through that trauma and unpacking some of that stuff and, and how it affected me as an adult man. And um, it changed my life. Uh, it changed my life immensely. It changed my life uh, into uh, confidence and in, in who, I, who I am. And um, so much so that uh, I really felt encouraged and uh, drawn into creating 
um, a place for other men to investigate their story and, and uh, get closer to God while doing some pretty fun stuff as it relates to shooting guns and throwing tomahawks and eating steaks. And, and, and what True North really is, is it's a place for men to learn that vulnerability is not weakness, but it's strength. Um, and we, we do that by luring guys into, hey, let's go on this killer ranch and we'll go fishing and shoot guns and eat some steaks and hang out by the fire and we'll have seven hours of silence with God and processing. You know, like that's kind of the, the bottom tagline. And uh, we started that in 2019 and um, and just blessed to be doing that today and, and being over overflowing with uh, with men that are actually wanting to come out and experience what we're doing. I'm def- definitely going to dig into it more, but I, 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 we have to kind of go backwards to get to, to where we got there because that's a lot to unpack. So tell me about just the, 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 the experience of auditioning and, and just becoming uh, a real-world cast member. What, where did you see that this was happening? Of course, you and David you know, famously went in together. Um, they come and pick you. I'm, not, I'm guessing that was staged, but tell me all about the, uh, just the knowing about the show and wanting to be on it. And, and your audition and where you went and all, all that stuff. How did, how did you know about it? Because you guys were season seven. This happened in 1998. Um, did you even know you were going to Seattle? Give me all of the things that went into kind of yeah. going for the audition. Sure. Um, so late 90s, you know, uh, for, for those that remember, um, you know, not a ton of Internet stuff going on. And uh, the real world was, man, the thing. Uh, that was what was happening and people wanted to be on and be around and you know in 97 David and I we were at school together and we were friends and David and I actually lived in Europe together for a semester abroad in 1997 when we were in Europe we happened upon the filming of Les Miserables with uh, Liam Neeson and Claire Danes and this was Claire Danes post Romeo and Juliet, you know, and, and, uh, and so they weren't huge actors yet, but, uh, when we met them, they, um, sorry, I'm blocking here. They, uh, we actually met them and they, they said, Oh, you're English speaking. And we were like, Oh, you guys are too. What are you doing? And they're like, Oh, we're filming this movie. And, um, I'd never seen a Hollywood production before. And it was, magnificent i mean it was unbelievable and in 97 in the czech republic in prague if you were over the age of 18 you didn't speak anything other than czechoslovakian so finding other english-speaking people in 97 was a big deal so we hit it off with the crew from this movie and they let us watch them shoot their final scene in the evening well we watched claire day and shoot this scene and we were kind of starstruck and we were like hey we're going to uh this bar, if you guys want to join us, and they were like, English-speaking people, we're in. And so we went out that night and had drinks with Liam and Claire, and and just was just an unbelievable experience. So much so that when I left that experience, my plan when I came back to the States was, man, how do I get into the the field of entertainment? And I'm a small-town Virginia guy. My first plane flight ever was when we went to Europe, you know? And so I I just figured I had no way to, to break into that scene. We get back to the States and we're in our senior year at BMI 
And I get home from class one day and there's a flyer, a flyer for those who don't know is something that's put on a piece of paper and is handed out. Um, and that's how you communicated events and different things back in the day. And there was a flyer on my desk that said MTV would be in Richmond, Virginia, uh, accepting live auditions for season seven of the real world. I'm like, dude, I've got a crazy story. This has got to be my chance and I'm going to go apply. So I snuck off campus because you're not allowed to leave VMI um, without, you know, written permission, military school. And I went to Richmond, Virginia and showed up in person. And my first interview, I, I went up to the casting director. It was at a bar, weird. And uh, I sat down with two shots of Patron Silver and two Budweiser's and said, I'm, the, I'm Nathan Blackburn and and I'm going to be on the next season of the real world. They were like, oh, excuse me, you are. And um, we had an <clears throat> unbelievable time together in that first interview. Uh, so much so that, you know, the next day I get a phone call at VMI, which, again, we didn't have cell phones. And so there was a note on my desk when I got back to my, my room in barracks. And it said, MTV has requested to see you again. Um, and so... I called the number that they gave me and, and they said, Hey, can you come back down to Richmond for a second interview? You've made it past round one. I never knew David auditioned. I don't know. And he doesn't know that I'm auditioning at all this time. So I go back to this second interview back in Richmond and uh, it's in a hotel room this time with a different director. And it's all these things are, are documented and filmed. And it was probably a two hour interview uh, that was very, um, intrusive, right? I mean, they were really wanting to know the story. Um, and then that was it. And so they're like, we'll be in touch. And, uh, man, a few weeks, maybe, maybe a month goes by and, and I end up getting another call while at VMI. And, and they said, Hey, would you be willing to set up a video camera and do a phone interview with us for round three? Of course. Yes. And, and so you actually sit up, a video camera and you're recording while they're talking to you. And then you send them the tape. And I did that maybe two other times. Uh, we're talking five, probably five interviews at this point um, to where you get a phone call that says, Hey, um, you've made it to the finals. And if you're open, we'd love to fly you. And my girlfriend at the time, Stephanie, um, they would gotten to know her as a result of my interviews out to Los Angeles to meet with everybody. Um, this is probably four months process at this point. And so uh, when we got out there to L.A. and went to Butum and Murray Productions in um, Ventura, which I'd never been to L.A. I mean, it was just I was starstruck as is. We got out there and, and during that interview with Stephanie sitting next to me, they brought up David. Um, and I was like, David? Well, you know, and I really had no idea. Um, and so you know, we found out maybe three weeks later that we both made the show. We thought that David was going to go on road rules because they were, they auditioned and cast for real world and road rules simultaneously. And so of those 30, they were going to take whatever it is, 15 people, half the people would make it. Uh, and Stephanie, my girlfriend was somehow thrown into the mix as castmates and was going to come on the show with me and David was going to do road rules. And in hindsight, we found out later that David made real world because he was secretly having an affair with Kira, you know, the casting director who is the first person I sat down with at the bar and, 
and had the shots of Patron and 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 uh, beers with. And the only reason she brought me back, she said, was because my last name was Blackburn. And at the time, she lived on Blackburn Avenue in, in California. So, man, uh, long story to get around how we got there. And, and I will tell you this, that back then, they did a masterful job of casting. It was a rooms full of... Um, professionals and therapists and counselors and psychologists that were really looking at, you know, they start out with over a hundred thousand videotapes and in-person interviews and stuff. And to whittle it down to a handful of folks that don't need anything other than to live together was pretty masterful in how they did it. Now we were one of the last seasons that I think people would say this probably unanimously around the country that people could relate to um, and that were, for a lack of better terms, real. Um, nothing on our season was set up. They didn't give us things to say. Nothing was manufactured. They didn't have to. You know, like they just per- picked the perfect people to be together to watch the chaos. Yeah, it's seemingly all people who want to be actors now. Um, that's a great story. And it, I, I was reading, I read about all your casts before this because I wanted just to to see, you know, where people might be. And I read this thing from Irene where she wrote all of the things that went on in her in her audition and then the time she was there. And she, she obviously didn't have a good time there. Um, but then they sort of flipped it on her and they used the Lyme disease thing as sort of the reason why she was leaving and flipping out. Um, she got kind of mad about that. Um, so I guess there's some people that just, you know, don't like the edit. There's always the edit. But it's amazing because she did say, and it, the, the, the things that, that kind of hit me, it was like, well, the first line of the show is seven strangers, and you were not strangers with David, which was interesting. That, that's true. Yeah. Um, and there wasn't a reality show on still. You guys were the only, up till about Survivor and American Idol. I mean, yeah. this was the only reality show, even though it had been on six different seasons so there still wasn't this playbook. I mean, you could watch Miami and you could watch Boston, obviously. Um, but I just think that was interesting that as I think back, you guys still were kind of in the, that early stages. I yeah. mean, it was the infantile stages of reality TV. Um, so I, there's a lot of questions right there. I guess what what was it like when you got in there? And or just tell me about just being picked. And then what they was it was it that day when you see the camera showing up at VMI? I would assume by then you know, right? Was that stage? And tell me about just now making that move. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so you we found out um, during Christmas break, and so we knew mid December that we were going on the show, <clears throat> and so they wanted to have a send off at BMI, and so. You know, they worked it out with the school. Uh, the, the reveal was personal, and it was a phone call that you got. You know, and and, uh, and then they said, "Hey, we want to we want to actually show VMI through the casting process, and um, we'll we'll meet you guys there at the beginning of the semester." And and you know, we're not it's not staged, but hey, we want to get some content. And VMI did a parade of like kind of sending us off, and this big pretty big deal. Um, so that part was phenomenal. I had no idea we were going to Seattle until um, probably a week before you were going. Um, and so I didn't know what Seattle was. I remember getting on AOL and like typing in Seattle and the Emerald City and, uh, you know, kind of checking things out. You know, we 
we were still the only reality game in town. Um, and, and it was a big deal, but I don't think we knew how big of a deal it was until we got off the show. <clears throat> um, to this day, Seattle was the second highest rated season viewer wise ever. Um, and that, how to, how to really equate that to context. So episode one airs and I'm on a family vacation in Bermuda an island off the coast of uh, America, right? And the first episode airs, and the next day in Bermuda, on the beach, seven or eight people are like, dude, you're the guy from... And so that was the first time where I was like, oh, my life might be ready, about to change. It aired in 97 countries, um, which is insane. How did you not watch? How did you not have like a watch party? I mean, you would think this. All right, we're gonna get behind the TV and watch. Because, because, like, if this vacation happened and I was trying, like, I look, I cheated on my on Stephanie, and and I didn't know if that was gonna be aired. She cheated on me. Like, there was, it was like, hey, I need to really focus on my relationship. They here's what they used to do. They would send you in the mail a VHS copy of the show eight days before it aired. And they did that to prep you so that it wasn't some big reveal. And so, I mean, I still got the VHS tapes. And so I knew what the episode was and we did a private watch party before we went on this vacation. Um, it was just such a different time. Like I am so grateful that social media did not exist back then because I mean, I would have been in, I would have in trouble, trouble, like a lot of trouble probably. <laughs> What? It's crazy. I was just in my head doing the math. Um, it's twenty, basically twenty three years ago is when this thing aired. It's been twenty uh, three years now. <laughs> you know, it, I, I was twenty three when I watched it. That's what I was in my head. I'm like, all right, wait a minute. So that's crazy. Um, do you? So let's go. Do you talk to any of these folks at all? I mean, again, twenty three years is a long time. Yeah. So anybody? Do you yeah, keep you know, keep in contact with any long, of them? Yeah, I'm sorry. Contact them. I didn't mean to cut you off, Brad. Um, Yes. The answer is yes. You know, uh, at first, you know, a lot, um, you know, what I found is I wanted to be serious about trying to get into the film business. And I thought the real world would be a platform to that. Little did I know that it would be almost an inhibitor to that because of the notoriety that came with your face. I can remember early on in auditions for CBS and, and for, for films and stuff, they were, would say, man, you did a really great job, buddy, but we can't cast you because you're two people know you as Nathan. And it would be hard for the viewer to disassociate with that. So I got really serious about acting and went to Sandy Meisner Movement Studio in New York City and went to Second City in Chicago and uh, these different things to, to try to get me in there. And I say that because MTV was calling all the time. Hey, we got this thing. Hey, we got this thing. Hey, we got this thing. And my, my management, my agents were saying, dude, the more you do that, the harder this is going to be for you. And, and so that's why you see me do a couple of those challenges early on and disappear from that. And so I started to, to just separate myself from this group of reality folks that, that really was incestuous at the time of people lived together and they lived on a certain block in Santa Monica. And I mean, it was just this thing. Um, and so 
that kind of started this wide chasm for me away from all that stuff that really continued into my drinking and kind of the darkness. I mean, I ended up homeless twice kind of in that process. And, but recently um, I have reconnected with Irene um, in a good, in a really good, good way. You know, she and I have been able to, to connect and talk about, you know, the trauma that, that resulted for her and, you know, the resentment and stuff that she had towards, you know, how they did, do some of that editing and, and, you know, and I, I took some responsibility around, man, I kind of turned my back on her when she left too, because to me, I didn't want to rock the boat. You know, this was my ticket to, to getting into things. And man, I just, as I've grown, grown up in a lot of ways as a man, I just wanted her to know that. And so we've become, uh, you know, friendly again, she's got a baby and expecting her second baby right now. And, you know, I lost contact with David, um, over the years and we just recently reconnected. So MTV's has been trying to track everybody down and, and uh, there's this phenomenon around the reunion homecoming stuff. And um, we were on par to be, to do that. And so uh, they asked me to reach out and try to connect some of these cast members. And I did um, not everybody. And, and, uh, some of the cast members, I won't say, refused to uh, to to communicate, and uh, we won't be doing that that homecoming show as a result of that. Uh, but uh, yeah, you know, I got I've, I've contact with Miz from time to time, and Theo from Chicago, and I just had coffee about a month ago, two months ago. He lives right outside of Dallas, and you know, there's a handful of, of folks that that I'll be in contact with, but. Um, it, we've just all kind of gone in different directions. There's a pool of them that love that identity and they stay there. And I think, you know, who those are <laughs> and that's not me. No. And that's, it's interesting. Cause again, I have, I've contacted others for this series and I will tell you, they've turned me down and had wonderful conversations with people um, with the same thing that they've been contacted for a homecoming uh, and I, I really thought of this before that, so I'm I'm kind of angry that this is becoming. Um, but they say the same thing. They say, listen, that was then, I'm sort of, you know, that was 30 years ago, 20, whatever years ago. So I get it, and I, I totally understand it. But that's why I appreciate that you're doing this, because I think I really do, I want to know what you're up to. My wife actually said she saw you on Instagram. She's like, you should try, you should try the guy from Seattle. I think he would do it. Um <laughs> So no, I, I guess, you know, when you look back, are you happy you did that? Are you happy that that was part of your life? And it, it's six months, right? It's so small. It's like, you know, a semester of college, but it is, it's amazing that, you know, again, I remember you, I went back and watched some of these episodes and it was fun to go back and think about where I was in life. How do you think about when you look back, happy you did it? Oh, hundred percent. I mean, do it again, do it again. Would you yeah, do Of course, of, of, of course. I mean, Here's the thing, in hindsight, you know, I was trying to rally my cast to do it um, because I think there's a there's there's such a good story within some of us around restoration and redemption. And and, you know, for Irene in particular, it was like, hey, you know, this is a chance for you to tell your side of the story. You know, if we're going to do this thing together and also to show people, you know, that Lyme disease is real and, and how you've lived with it. And I think. I think because of the nostalgia of, of those earlier seasons of the real world, man, like people are connected to us and, they, and, you know, not from an egocentric point of view, but like, 
it brings you back to where you were 23 years ago and what was going on. And, and so anytime I get asked to do this stuff, I'm in um, only because like I, I, I went dark for a, a long time in, as a result of my drinking and I was embarrassed and I was shameful about it. And um, I mean, I can tell you in 2009, you know, after the fall of, of the economy and stuff, man, I was addicted to cocaine again. And I, I was waiting tables at a restaurant and I was 145 pounds and people would still recognize me, you know, from the show. And it was like, I was living in this chain tape of hiding behind, you know, what I was to what I had become. And man, you, by the grace of God, that has changed immensely because of, of who he is and what he's done in my life. And I'm not trying to, to be any kind of pastoral preachy, none of that. I don't ever want to be that. Uh, but I do want to share that truth that, that has truly set me free um, in, in, in on a different trajectory, because I think all too often people hide behind uh, the fear of judgment and the name that comes in the stigma that comes along with, with being an alcoholic or being a drug addict. And, um, and so for me, if it's an opportunity to share that there's hope out there in that with people, I will, when I go back and do it again, yeah, because it was part of my story. It helped speed up the process for me to eventually have a fall that would, that would bring me to my knees in, in, in literal ways and also in, in emotional ways to, to truly reach out and ask for help, um, so that I could eventually come out the other side, not to mention, man, I got to do some unbelievable, cool stuff, like, you know, hanging out with method man and Wu-Tang clan. And like, I mean, those are like idols of mine and flying jets and, and traveling the world. I mean, it was amazing. I, I guess I just never can get the grasp, the cameras in my face all the time. How quickly do you get used to that when in your situation, at least? Sure. Uh, man, like in a day, because you've already gone through a, four to six month process of being interviewed in front of the cameras, which are right there. Right. Well, as you start to film, the cameras aren't right there. Like what's so, what's so great about it is you're wearing mics that, that I think had uh, like a two mile range or something ridiculous on it. The cameras would be down the hall, you know? And so you kind of know they're there. And I will say the benefit to having David with me was, you know, the first couple days were were hard because you're so aware of the cameras and you're so aware of not wanting to look like a douche, you know, or or like, you know, are my boys back home just going to ride me if I'm some total different guy? And so Dave and I made, made a pact on the way out, like, hey, if we're not showing up authentic, man, we've got to tell, be able to tell the other person and to receive it, you know? And, and so we had that conversation like three days in, we're just like, man, we got to be ourselves. We're not being ourselves. Let's just like ignore the cameras and just let go. Um, and I think it, you know, as evidenced by the show that we did that, <laughs> we definitely let go. I was going to say, it sounds like you're happy with your edit, even though you're the first scene, you and Stephanie leaving. And then the next scene you're on the phone and, that was going to be your. That's going to be your storyline. You have to craft a storyline, but that was it. Huh? Tell yeah. me about. So, yeah. the, I mean, everyone will will mention your. You know, that season is the the one. It's every season gets remembered for something, right? Season three is uh, the Pedro Zamora story. Um, so you guys are, are known for the Irene and Steven slap her around the world. And you said you talked to Irene, and I read about her and kind of just her seeing it. What was it like being in the house? And what was it like then finally seeing it on TV? 
because you know you didn't see it live. You heard about it. You heard about you know what they told you. I, I don't know. Did they show it to you? Tell me a little bit about that. Did they come in and show you what happened to, to get your reactions? I can't remember if that did happen. And then your thoughts after you saw it. And then it sounds like now again, 23 years later, um, you're good with Irina. Not not sure how you are with Stephen, but go ahead and just give me some thoughts on that. Yeah, you know we were we were in the lit in the kitchen area by the pool table when she took off and had her final word to Stephen and she was brilliant in, in how she uh, knew to incite him, you know, and uh, <clears throat> he just takes off out the front door and that's all we see. And then pandemonium ensues and we see, you know, uh, production crew kind of just flying everywhere down the pier to the, to where the cars were. And I kind of can remember just going out like, what's, what's going on. And, and they, they escorted Steven away. They never let him come back, um, which is smart uh, on their part, because I would, it would not have been probably good uh, physically in, in that way. Um, and so they just said, Hey, Irene, Steven's hit Irene and, and y'all need to stay right here right now. We're trying to, to figure things out. And, you know, later that day they sat us down and said, Hey, we want to show you guys what happened and we're going to leave it up to you on what, you know, the, the response will be for Steven. Um, and I think they set us up for that one. Um, because one of the things I took responsibility for with Irene recently was that, man, I'm sorry I let him come back. Um, because the slap seems so insignificant in the way it's shown to us in the edit, which, you know, a slap's a slap, right? And, and I think, again, the you're under this illusion around your your future is really in the hands of, especially me who wanted to get in the entertainment world and being uh, an insecure young man, you know, I, I did not uh, know what I was, what I was saying, you know, and they sold it to us on this. Hey, if he stays, it's going to be anger management and, you know, give him a chance again. And we're going to try to get Irene back. And, you know, and so that for me is kind of a no brainer because I don't have to step into some, some conflict or, or choose a moral high ground, right? Because I, I was just so kind of insecure on that. So, you know, that part I, I had to apologize, man, to Irene for because he should have never come back in that house. Um, the reality is, is that from our season, the, the reality television contracts were written. Everything started having drug usage. Um, they, pulled, uh, they pulled David and I aside probably a month in and just said, Hey, we can't show you guys getting high, but we know you're getting high. And so we legally can't record you guys. Well, for me and David, it was like, Oh, so we can smoke pot and you can't show that Yahtzee, you know? And so we were off to the races, you know, like we learned that we could turn our mics off and they couldn't track us. You know, like they had to write rules and stipulations for physical contact, for drug usage, for um, evading and disappearing. Like I turned my mic off and went to Vancouver for three days. <laughs> you know, like it was uh, it, that stuff never makes made 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 it on air. But yeah, the way it was handled, you know, back then, you know, they screwed up. 
you know, if that had happened in today's day and age, man, we'd, we'd be having hashtag movements yeah. going on as a result. So and I think Irene feels really hurt and or felt really hurt by that and not supported. And she wasn't. I mean, they didn't do anything for, for Irene. And so I can see where that would, would make her really, you know, frustrated and bitter, which she was for years. I mean, she did a stand-up comedy routine around the country, lighting MTV up, you know? It's great because I'm having all these thoughts as you're telling me this because I'm a former TV producer and try to think of myself as a, a freelance TV producer. I still want to do stuff like that. But I think about the situation that those producers were in because, again, this is still pretty new, season eight. I mean, early on, they, they created this whole basically platform and way these shows are put together. You watch like my, my wife watches The Housewives. And you know that these women know they're going on, they're going on to fight. The producers, you know, tell them what this person said. And the fact that these people on at Boonham, Boonham, I can never remember if that's Boonham or Boonham Murray, had the foresight to just sort of know what would make, quote, reality TV. Oh, it's going to be people, but we're going to manipulate the situations. We're going to kind of try to, and then you guys knowing how to get out of it, it's all so interesting to me that just even back then there was all these thoughts going around just kind of how do we, you know, what do we show? How do we get to make fights? How do we get things that look like good television? I think it's, it's so interesting as we talk because, again, in 1998, people have to remember this was the only reality show. You guys were actually real people. As you see, this wasn't actors coming in and trying to get the, their first start. So it's so interesting to me. Um, so I appreciate that. So we, we talked about kind of that, that time uh, after you did some stuff on, you did some challenges. You talked to The Miz still? Because I saw your, you were on the gauntlet with The Miz. Your, your gauntlet season was pretty pretty great names. I mean, some of the great seasons, and it was early on. I think it was 02 or 03. So you got Coral and Miz and then Norm from season one. Um, and you still chat with The Miz. Huh? Is, that, is that on and, like an ongoing thing? No, I mean, here or there. You know, Norm, I mean, I just talked to Norm. Norm the other day, Norm and I are, are, are still really fairly close. And um, John Brennan, you know, from uh, from L.A., the, the cowboy, the Jesus cowboy, you know, our buds and CT and some of those guys. But, um, yeah, it, it uh, the challenges, I did the first one actually ever, which was the Real World Road Rules All-Stars. And that's where we had the tour bus and then this, the losing team had to drive around in this Winnebago from the sixties called the shitty Winnie, uh, where we went to like Hugh Hefner's house and the playboy, man, all, all that, all that stuff. And, um, the gauntlet was the last thing I ever did on air. Um, before the gauntlet, I was on guiding light for a while, soap opera. And I did, I toured the country with Willie Nelson, the Dixie chicks as the grandmaster of ceremonies for them. And, um, had did a bunch of commercials, movies, all, all those kind of things. And then, uh, the, the cocaine was, was really kicking my butt and MTV kept calling and calling. I kept declining. And, and then the other offers stopped coming in as a result of my drinking and kind of word was getting out that, you know, Nathan is, is, uh, kind of not to be trusted. He's not, he doesn't show up to meetings and which was totally opposite of who I was. Um, and so and I, I needed money and I needed something. And I finally called MTV back and that's what the gauntlet was. And, uh, you know, if you see me on that show, it's the beginning of the end for me. I, I mean, I, I was up smoking crack cocaine for two days before day one of that show. And so I showed up there not having slept for two days. The 
funny part of that is I kicked their asses. <laughs> okay. We're talking, you know, so that, that, that I'll hang my hat on that. It's so good. Made it to the end. We lost because Coral's a liar. Um, I don't want to bring up old, old stuff with that one, but we should have never voted off Theo. Theo should have been there. Coral did not get bit by a spider. You just couldn't run up the mountain period. Theo, Theo was on that one. He, he doesn't let us white Theo, who's now like an unbelievable comedian. He's doing his net next Netflix deal. He was on there and he'd never let us live that down. We, but that was my last MTV deal. And I, and I made it ass of myself during that filming i will tell you that the rap party i was on mushrooms and sorry if this is uh on the podcast for free range right right we're real real world real life talking here <laughs> it was it was nuts it was just the beginning of uh really my downfall into addiction the next 10 years of my life were uh multiple duis and uh just no money and and just bad bad stuff um, but I always think back to the gauntlet because that was seeing myself on TV looking like that, how different I was, um, kind of opened the door to me starting to go, man, maybe there's a problem. Um, and that's what led me to move to Colorado. We shot the gauntlet in Telluride and that was my first experience in Colorado. And my brother was living in Denver at the time. And, uh, when, when the bottom fell out in California, right after shooting the gauntlet, he came out and said, Hey man, let's just get you out of LA. And I was like, yeah, let's get me out of LA. Colorado is great. Um, and that's what would eventually lead me to, to Texas and to God and, and to, to recovery. Yeah. I mean, I, so I was just curious. I mean, did you, do you look back and wonder well, why, why was I addicted or is it a sickness in your head and, and you just, I mean, are there thoughts that come through? Because I, from what I could tell, it looks like you had your, your third. I'm going to read you your rap sheet here, if you don't mind. But you had your third DUI somewhere in 2013, 2014. And then after that, it seems like everything is, that's when sort of things kind of clicked. And you met some folks in Colorado. Um, but I mean, it's so funny we're talking about this. My, my interview I did one year ago was with a guy named Scott Spezio, former baseball player. And he battled addiction um, up until two and a half years ago and now he's in his mid fifties and he's finally clean and he's doing, he was just at the ballpark last night at Bush stadium. But I, I'm always curious when I talk to folks about this, cause I am curious and I, I like to, to, to learn and it maybe help. You never know who's watching and maybe they can be helped. Yeah. What do you think back on what was going on? Was it because of your childhood? Did you just enjoy it? What, what do you, th or is it, Hey, it's a sickness and it's a very yeah. incredible sickness, hard to fix and hard to, hard to heal. Sure. Well, I'm, I'm going to tell you this. The answer is yes to all of it, right? And so I believe that I, I, I was predisposed to having uh, the disease of alcoholism and addiction. It, and it is a disease recognized by the medical community that has nothing to do with alcohol and drugs. So that medical community really dropped the ball in how they named it. Um, alcohol and drugs become a solution to a mental issue that's going on inside. And it's really, for me, it was really sneaky on how it came because man, I enjoyed it. I was good at it. I had a great time. Like what, what happened, if I'm really honest, the insecurity I had as a child was born out of the environment, but also was just kind of in me. 
I think, you know, because I work with, with guys in recovery today who their childhood looked way different than mine, yet they still had that same insecurity, right? And so what I can remember is when I had my first alcohol experience at 14, 15 years old, I got drunk while camping with my buddy and his family on Miller Genuine Draft. And, and I can remember it's the, the most peaceful sense of ease and comfort come over me from the drinking, which I think everybody feels when you drink, you get a little buzz, right? But what's different is that this deep-seated, uh, message-driven insecurity that was in me was gone. And confidence, excuse me, comes up and, and it just gave me a new light, you know? And then as high school wears on, I start drinking and, you know, I get more confident around girls. And, and what's really going on is, was that this, this self berating, uh, messaging of man, you, you, they don't like you or whatever it is. It just gets quieted down and goes away. And you forget you even had it, you know, and then take this guy from small town, Virginia, who's really good at drinking, eh, probably drinks a little too much with his buddies. And now but let's go ahead and put him on MTV and let's give him access to the world and let's feed his false sense of security and ego with fame. Well, I forget real quickly that I had this, that I have all this stuff in my past that I've never dealt with um, that is eventually going to come out, right? And so when does that stuff come out? Well, when the drinking and the drugs stop working, you then start to abuse the drinking and the drugs because what you're trying to do is you're trying to recapture that that feeling and that confidence because slowly but surely these things are starting to bubble up of the trauma and the wounds and all the all these different things that will eventually come to the surface um and so for me the the disease of it was man i I enjoyed it and and me enjoying it helped me keep perpetuating the lie that i had a problem you know and early on it was man, Nathaniel, dude, like you, you're drinking. It's kind of out of hand. Oh no, it's not. I'm on MTV. This is what normal people would do. And then it was, you know, the first person who ever said, Hey, I think you might have a problem was Matt Kunitz, who was the director of our season of the real world, who later went on to do fear factor and wipe out and all that stuff. And, and, and he pulled me aside a month into filming Seattle and goes, Hey, do you know that you become a completely different person when you drink? And I'm like, who doesn't? I'm 21. I'm on the real world, you know? And, and, and so they just, I just, it was a lie. They just kept going and going and going. And, and uh, it's one of these diseases that, that has nothing to do with alcohol, has nothing to do with drugs. And if you're not homeless, living under a bridge or selling your body for drugs, then you're, you're probably not a drug addict, right? Wrong. Like that's the lie. And so when I was introduced into recovery, you know, I remember sitting in my first 12 step meeting and it was a bunch of heroin addicts. And, and I was like, that's wrong with these people. I can't believe they're shooting heroin. I was like, man, I love cocaine and things get a little out of hand and I smoke some crack, you know, like, like your, your bar is here. And then slowly but surely what you become are the thing that is the thing that you were judging. Like all those people who were homeless and addicted to heroin and all that. Well, where do you think I ended up 10 years later? You know, 10 years later, my bar kept getting lowered, 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 only because I was unwilling to admit Mm -hmm. that I had a problem Um, because society 
really circles the wagons in a lot of ways around judgment of that. So, um, very long answer. I'm sorry, man. I could talk to you about this for, for a really long time. Well, I think it's interesting. It's interesting what you just said, cause I was listening to you and that's interesting. Cause I, I mean, I've had drinks, I've had too many, uh, always thought eh, I'm okay, but it is interesting when you said you, and I think this is what you said. You look at someone else at a AA meeting and you're like, Oh, they're worse than me. All I'm doing is this, but then you keep getting to that next point where now you are them and that's crazy and that's an interesting thought that i would never think of but an interesting way of putting it because you probably do go in there going oh they're way worse than me i'm just doing a little cocaine they're on heroin well then yeah that's so it's very interesting i didn't know if you had more to, to say on this so i, I would but i just wanted to mention that i thought that was really interesting yeah you know i just i think i mean i think for me is that more there's less there's less of a percentage of people that have alcoholism and addiction that are ready to admit it because they're not homeless, because they're not living under a bridge. I guarantee if you were to cast the net around your circle of people, three or four people in there are struggling right now. And you don't even know that they're struggling right now because people are so ashamed to ask for help. And there, there's not enough information out there to help people connect the dots that man, <clears throat> You don't have to have a broken past to be an alcoholic. You, you don't have to be homeless to be an alcoholic. If you're taking something outside to fix an internal condition, you might have a problem. Man, that could be food. It could be gambling. It could be money. It could be women. Um, drugs and alcohol are just under this microscope because it's killing people, right? And so I, I just think there's so many people out there that are struggling with with addiction that, that, that they're just unwilling to ask for help. And I think they're easy needs to be more focus on people that are recovered saying, Hey man, here's, here's the lies I lived under and, and I'm not ashamed of it anymore. And, and I, and I want to be honest about it. And, and so if I'm given an opportunity to come on here, I'm not trying to, to share my story in a way to give me glory by any means, but, and, and here's the deal. If I don't, if I stop doing what I'm doing today, meaning I sponsor a handful of guys and help them, where they're at, like coming off the street or, or, or waking up to the fact they have a problem. And, and what I'm doing is I'm, I'm walking them through the recovery process as it was shown to me. And what, what happens is this beautiful thing that I'm reminded of not too long ago, who I was when I was dependent upon drugs and alcohol and dependent upon myself, you know? And, and, and so any chance I can get to, to talk about it, what it really does, I'm being helpful, but it really, it helps me in a lot of ways because if I were to stop sponsoring guys, if I were to stop seeking my relationship with God and trying to be of service, man, I really believe that uh, I would convince myself that, man, dude, they like, you've been sober for years and weeds, like legal and you loved weed and, and man, you're a pretty high strung guy. And you know, like you're about to have kids, like it'd probably be good maybe to get a prescription to some pot again, to just kind of mellow you out. That sounds insane to me today. Um, but I can't tell you how many times a conversation like that happened with myself when I was trying to get sober. Um, and I would believe that delusional thought and, and I would relapse. And that, I mean, hopefully that little bit of a story would help family members kind of understand why do our, why do our kids, why are they relapsing? Why does my husband continue to relapse? Doesn't he understand the, the pain that he's causing and the hurt that he's causing? Like families are baffled when guys 
relapse. And, and what I can tell you on the other side of it is going like, sometimes those guys are choosing that over you. Uh, but more times than not, they are in this mental illness and this obsession and this cycle that's going on with the way their brain works that you're not in the equation, you know, and, and, and it's not purposeful towards you. It's then they are under the delusion that this mental illness is twisting people's brains around. Yeah, well, it's, a, it's a great story. And I'm glad you're here to tell it. How many days sober for you? You said kids, right? Are you married? How many kids? And uh, one more time, just tell us how you kind of came about with truenorthretreats.org, which is what we're kind of wrapping up with here. Just uh, those three, yeah, three questions in one right there. Look at that. Look at me do do this interview thing. You're a great host. Oh, thanks. Uh, yes. So, yeah, you're welcome. Um, man, I've been I've been sober for six and a half years. Uh, it took me 10 years to get sober. Uh, so been around it for 16 and a half years, six and a half years sober, married, expecting twins, uh, in a couple months. And, uh, true North retreats, uh, was born in 2019. And, um, and we have got, uh, retreats booked through the end of the year. And we're already booking out for 2022. Um, if, if anybody wants to go to the website or, or shoot me a message uh, or inquiry on the website, we'd love to talk to you about joining one of our retreats or answering questions. Um, we have not marketed ourselves in any way, shape or form because we're fearful that we don't have the capacity to, to meet the need. Um, as people start to hear about what we're doing, um, we've got a waiting list of guys that want to go out and spend some time with God and some fellowship. And um, Brad, we'll have to, Maybe get you come on down. Never know. Make, make a little trip, man. And uh, have anything, anything to get out of the house, and uh, I'm I'm okay. Yeah, put, put me on the list. Are you? Are you? What about you? Married kids? I'm married. I have a stepson that's 13, and we're uh, you know we're gonna try to try to make our own child over here as well. But I've been married three years now, very happily, very very excited. And again, my wife told me. She's like Nathan from Steve, you know, real world. You should try him. She she always gives me these ideas, and I'm like, he he won't do it. But I'm I'm glad that she. This is this is how we work. As we're a team over here. Yeah, yeah, that's great, man. What uh, in your stepson's name? Uh, it's Ethan. And your wife's name? Catherine. I'm awesome. trying to give this out over the over the, but they have to, they're out there on Instagram, so ah, it's all right. right. That's fine. Yeah. Uh, I always finish with a, hit anything. Did we miss anything? Anything else you want to talk about? Or did we? I think we got to everything. I had so much fun. I could probably go on and on about the real world. So there might be a part two at some point with you, but we've gone long enough. Is there anything, though, that, that we need to wrap up with that I may have missed or you want to make sure people know? No, man, I, I just appreciate what you're doing. And again, you know, from the bottom of my heart, man, thanks for uh, being a fan and uh, remembering and and extending the, the invitation to come and be a part of your show, man. I, I Anytime you need that or, or want to follow up or if there's anything I can do to be helpful to you, just let me know. That's, I'm going to do that. You're going you're gonna to hear from me after I t get to – I'm going to tell my audience something, but stay right there. That's uh, Nathaniel Blackburn. I really appreciate his time here. And, again, thanks for watching. Here's the pitch. It's sponsored by Masses Restaurants, five locations, stlmasses.com. Don't for forget to subscribe as well, and we'll see you next time.